The Wildness of Domesticity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. What's Wrong with the World by G. K. Chesterton. Part 1, Chapter 8. The Wildness of Domesticity. In the course of this crude study we shall have to touch on what is called the problem of poverty, especially the dehumanized poverty of modern industrialism. But in this primary matter of the ideal the difficulty is not the problem of poverty, but the problem of wealth. It is the special psychology of leisure and luxury that falsifies life. Some experience of modern movements of the sort called advanced has led me to the conviction that they generally repose upon some experience peculiar to the rich. It is so with that fallacy of free love of which I have already spoken, the idea of sexuality as a string of episodes. That implies a long holiday in which to get tired of one woman, and a motor-car in which to wander looking for others. It also implies money for maintenances. An omnibus conductor has hardly time to love his own wife, let alone other people's, and the success with which nuptial estrangements are depicted in modern problem plays is due to the fact that there is only one thing that a drama cannot depict. That is a hard day's work. I could give many other instances of this plutocratic assumption behind progressive fads. For instance, there is a plutocratic assumption behind the phrase, Why should woman be economically dependent upon man? The answer is that among poor and practical people she isn't, except in the sense in which he is dependent upon her. A hunter has to tear his clothes, there must be somebody to mend them. A fisher has to catch fish, there must be somebody to cook them. It is surely quite clear that this modern notion that woman is a mere pretty clinging parasite, a plaything, etc., arose through the sombre contemplation of some rich banking family, in which the banker, at least, went to the city and pretended to do something, while the banker's wife went to the park and did not pretend to do anything at all. A poor man and his wife are a business partnership. If one partner in a firm of publishers interviews the authors, while the other interviews the clerks, is one of them economically dependent? Was Hodder a pretty parasite clinging to Stoughton? Was Marshall a mere plaything for Snellgrove? But of all the modern notions generated by mere wealth, the worst is this, the notion that domesticity is dull and tame. Inside the home, they say, is dead decorum and routine. Outside is adventure and variety. This is indeed a rich man's opinion. The rich man knows that his own house moves on vast and soundless wheels of wealth, is run by regiments of servants, by a swift and silent ritual. On the other hand, every sort of vagabondage of romance is open to him in the streets outside. He has plenty of money, and can afford to be a tramp. His wildest adventure will end in a restaurant, while the yokel's tamest adventure may end in a police court. If he smashes a window, he can pay for it. If he smashes a man, he can pension him. He can, like the millionaire in the story, buy an hotel to get a glass of gin. 
and because he, the luxurious man, dictates the tone of nearly all advanced and progressive thought, we have almost forgotten what a home really means to the overwhelming millions of mankind. For the truth is that to the moderately poor the home is the only place of liberty. Nay, it is the only place of anarchy. It is the only spot on the earth where a man can alter arrangements suddenly, make an experiment, or indulge in a whim. Everywhere else he goes he must accept the strict rules of the shop, inn, club, or museum that he happens to enter. He can eat his meals on the floor in his own house if he likes. I often do it myself. It gives a curious, childish, poetic picnic feeling. There would be considerable trouble if I tried to do it in an ABC tea shop. A man can wear a dressing gown and slippers in his house. While I am sure that this would not be permitted at the Savoy, though I never actually tested the point. If you go to a restaurant, you must drink some of the wines on the wine list. All of them, if you insist, but certainly some of them. But if you have a house and a garden, you can try to make hollyhock tea or convolvulus wine, if you like. For a plain, hard-working man, the home is not the one tame place in the world of adventure. It is the one wild place in the world of rules and set tasks. The home is the one place where he can put the carpet on the ceiling or the slates on the floor if he wants to. When a man spends every night staggering from bar to bar or from music hall to music hall, we say that he is living an irregular life. But he is not. He is living a highly regular life under the dull and often oppressive laws of such places. Sometimes he is not allowed even to sit down in the bars, and frequently he is not allowed to sing in the music halls. Hotels may be defined as places where you are forced to dress, and theaters may be defined as places where you are forbidden to smoke. A man can only picnic at home. Now I take, as I have said, this small human omnipotence, this possession of a definite cell or chamber of liberty, as the working model for the present inquiry. Whether we can give every Englishman a free home of his own or not, at least we should desire it, and he desires it, for the moment we speak of what he wants, not of what he expects to get. He wants, for instance, a separate house. He does not want a semi-detached house. He may be forced in the commercial race to share one wall with another man. Similarly, he might be forced in a three-legged race to share one leg with another man. But it is not so that he pictures himself in his dreams of elegance and liberty. Again, he does not desire a flat. He can eat and sleep and praise God in a flat. He can eat and sleep and praise God in a railway train. But a railway train is not a house, because it is a house on wheels, and a flat is not a house, because it is a house on stilts. An idea of earthy contact and foundation, as well as an idea of separation and independence, is a part of this instructive human picture. I take, then, this one institution as a test. As every normal man desires a woman, and children born of a woman, every normal man desires a house of his own to put them into. He does not merely want a roof above him and a chair below him. He wants an objective and visible kingdom, a fire at which he can cook what food he likes, a door he can open to what friends he chooses. This is the normal appetite of men. 
I do not say that there are not exceptions. There may be saints above the need and philanthropists below it. Opelstein, now he is a duke, may have got used to more than this, and when he was a convict may have got used to less. But the normality of the thing is enormous. To give nearly everybody ordinary houses would please nearly everybody. That is what I assert without apology. Now, in modern England, as you eagerly point out, it is very difficult to give nearly everybody houses. Quite so. I merely set up the desideratum, and ask the reader to leave it standing there while he turns with me to a consideration of what really happens in the social wars of our time. End of The Wildness of Domesticity